0: welcome to episode two of the science and dance podcast it's great to be to be back again featuring our second uh, guest so quickly after the first today i'm with uh, dr nikki Kay, who is a sports endocrinologist Um, she's also a sports medic and her background is fascinating she's uh, grown up through dance and grown up um, with a, with a big dream and uh, really, really passionate as a, as a practitioner as well with her research into relative energy deficiency sport, um, which is a, a mutation on from the female athlete triad and the considerations surrounding um, nutrition, training, and recovery. Um, I'm really looking forward to this episode. I hope you enjoy it as ever. If you could comment with your uh, questions or comment with your thoughts and feedback below this episode, um, that would be fantastic. Share it on as many platforms as you can. Um, and we're really trying to push the message out there from today's podcast. I hope you enjoy it. On to Dr. Nikki Kay. Hi, Nikki. Thanks for joining us. And uh, I'm with Dr. Nikki Key. Who is an endocrinologist, an expert in terms of relative energy deficiency in sport, or we're also calling it in, in in dance as well. That's right, isn't that right, Nikki?
1: Absolutely. I mean, the acronym would get too long if we put dance in there as well. But um, of course, this is uh, anyone that's uh, active physically, and and that of course includes dancers.
0: That's great. So, Nikki, but for those people out there that don't um, know you or know about you. Could you briefly just tell us where you started how you got into the world of dance and your background as a as a for, in sports medicine as well sure
1: um well, I've always loved dancing I've always been a dancer I'm the sort of typical person I started dancing when I was four um, uh I've never been a professional, but I've always taken it i mean seriously I, uh, at the moment, for example, I'm still doing four classes a week. Uh, so dance has always been my passion, but also I'm very interested in other sports. I, uh, I was a competitive swimmer. I used to play tennis from my college. So, and my children are, uh, into triathlon and cycling. So, um, my background, my interest, my passion is dance number one, but certainly any sort of sport. Um, and then when I was studying, Uh, Well I have to tell you a little story here, Uh, when I was 16 I wanted to go to the Royal Ballet (laughs) and I did an audition but I didn't get in, Um, so I thought well actually I still want to be involved in dance so how else can I be involved and how else can I make uh, a contribution? Uh, even if I'm not going to be, unfortunately, uh, the principal at the Royal Ballet. So actually, I went on to dis- to study medicine, always in the back of my mind, that what I was going to be learning about the body, about hormones, uh, I was wanted to apply those um, in the long term to dancers and athletes to help support their health and their performance. So that's really why I'm so passionate about dance. Because I love dancing and I dance, <laughs> and, and that's my connection how making that link um, with my medical background and I chose hormones as my uh field of particular interest because um well, because those are also fascinating, and you can't see them obviously, but they're super important inside your body, not only just for keeping you healthy but as we're probably going to go on to discuss in more detail they're really really key to being reaching your full uh, potential whether that's a dancer or a sports person so yeah that there there we go that's my link between dance and medicine hormones
0: i love that way i love the way that you've drawn on that already which is like the fact that something something's so important but we can't see it and i think placing um value on The systems and things within systems of the body that have this huge impact on the physical output that we all love, which is dance, and uh, I think that's probably why, similar to why I got into strength and conditioning, is you know there are these adjustments we can make on a such a tiny level um, that we can't kind of quantify and and see them, but they're there and they're so crucial. So I think it's great that we've we've touched on that already, and you've you've even there hit the definition of kind of what sport and what what endocrinology is um but just to briefly touch in terms of your field of research right now um where are you up to with your meds medical research and your endocrinology research what's the state of play within dance endocrinology right now yeah well
1: so going so um, i think we've established that hormones although you can't see them they're super key they're and it's a network of hormones. It's not just one hormone. Everything works in uh, a synergistic or um, interlay together interactions of all these hormones. Uh, and the reason why you go out and train, whether that's doing a dance class, whether that's going out on your bike or doing a, another type of training session, you do the training session. and then. But what? how exactly you go and do the session and now you expect to get better? So next time I uh, go and do an an Allegro, for example, um, I want to be able to jump higher. That's the whole point of training. You want to improve. But the thing is, what is making you improve? Uh, And actually, it's the hormones are driving the adaptive changes in your body, whether that's the strength of muscles, muscles, whether that's more red blood cells to carry the oxygen around the body. All that is actually driven by by your hormones. Um, So that's why I'm so uh, interested and fascinated by looking at the effect of hormones on uh, your performance optimizing your performance I mean anecdotally we know um, that hormones are very important because actually not that I'm advocating doping in any way I just want to say that but uh, (laughs) 75% of the doping um, infringements are by using hormones and that was one of the re- my early piece of research work was to look at ways of trying to identify athletes that are cheating doping with growth hormone for example growth hormone is known to uh, improve your performance so so initially i started off uh that was my very first bit of research uh looking for the doping test for growth hormone and then very quickly it was as soon as possible i of course <laughs> wanted to get some studies done in dancers. And this, uh, so there were some studies I did on retired dancers looking at the state of play of their bone health. Um, and then I did a study of dancers in training looking at uh, their training load, what their hormones were doing, what their bone health was uh, doing, because there's a fine balance. I've just said that hormones are very, very important for improving your performance and keeping you healthy. Um, But there are some other factors. If you don't get the right balance, right, of your training load, uh, of your nutrition and your recovery, really then actually your hormones uh, won't work for you. Um, So it's getting that fine balance. And that's really the focus of my research, I guess you could say. And my most recent research was just in some uh, male cyclists looking at the uh, balance of their training load, their nutrition, and how that affects their performance and their bone health and just now um a little advert please no <laughs> i'm problem. just starting a questionnaire um for oh. dancers male female any uh genre of dance ballet um you know contemporary whatever uh just to try and assess um what's happening uh in terms of uh dancers awareness of not getting nutrition right and you know who who's at risk so um, that's uh, just a very simple questionnaire, just uh, approved by Durham University, which is online. Um, and the more responses I get to that, then that will help direct uh, even further research. And uh, ultimately, we're always looking for ways of improving things. And so, you, but you need the information, you need to know what is going on out there, what are the things you can do to uh, improve the health and performance of dancers.
0: And this this is so current, isn't it? Because I mean, not only you've just given us a brilliant kind of timeline there from where you started in, in, in research to this is this is very much at the the forefront of, of sports medicine at the moment anyway in the news with with kind of castosenia on the on the front line of, of, of what of hormones I guess and hormone excretion within women. Um and yeah. it's it's actually so performance based but it's really quite close to home for dancers as well. It, 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 it's making it very obvious to everybody that hang on a second, these hormones that were that are in the news right now yeah. uh-huh. are are even applicable to me and my performance. I think a lot of dancers are kind of going, well, have I got like the the right amount or not the right amount? But what are my levels of of, of, yeah. of hormones? Um, and I think that current research is, is is super important, but we are looking to raise the awareness of these systems and these 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 synergistic processes that you talk about as well and I think that's part of the reason for having you on today is to draw together something I'm very passionate about which is nutrition and training load and recovery but I'm very passionate about all those things but I guess you draw it together in such a way that is hang on the all these fact, all these things that we talk about in research have bigger implications within the body um and i i I like the uh, obviously i haven't got a visual but if i can i'll put a visual in the show notes um of a of a nice diagram you have which brings together the the training the nutrition and the recovery oh, yeah
1: the, the, the triangle diagram yes yeah. well i think if i can just uh, say there you you're quite right to you know what we're trying to really emphasize is that hormones are are uh crucial to your health and performance okay so all very well and good um but so what can you do as a dancer or an athlete to optimise your hormones? Um, Well, the good news is that uh, that it's actually under your um, behavioural control. Those three key factors, what can you control? You can control your training load, you can control your nutrition, what you're eating, and you can control your recovery. If you get those three things right, and you'll put the little triangle diagram up, you can see you're in the optimal Uh, You know in the optimal space for your hormones to work for you and all's well and good But it's very easy and we'll go on to discuss this I'm sure you know It's easy to get too much or too little of those three factors So it's in combination all those three things have got to be in the sweet spot if you will Okay, so um, And that's not I mean that's sort of on first uh, Appearance it's like oh well that's easy. I just get all those things, right But then we go into the practical issues of how what about now we're going in the finer detail the timing of when are you going to eat your food when are you going to have your recovery or, you know uh the training load um you know to a certain extent is is a little bit out of your control if you, if if you're in a dance company or in a dance school that these are the times of the classes these are the times of the rehearsals so um but you need to gel them all together Uh, And then hopefully you'll get the right balance of uh, all your hormones to support your health and
0: performance. So if we, if we use that as kind of like a pretty neat segue into just picking up on one of those three things, which I think is probably in dance is the, is the most talked about. I mean, training load obviously is a, is a more, is a much more, uh, much bigger topic in the recent, in recent years for dancers than previously. Um, But and recovery, we're starting to understand that, yeah, we need sleep, we need rest, we need some potentially some recovery modalities if we're looking to perform. But the nutrition side of things, you know, we can have, you know, both insufficient and excessive energy intake. We can have insufficient or excessive energy expenditure. I guess there's all these things that there's that whole system to balance. Um. But what are the direct impacts of reducing these this calorie deficit on our hormones we know that it makes people lose weight but how does that affect the system deeper
1: yeah so just so if we just focus on that nutrition just let's uh talk about um uh so energy uh So the energy, you get all, you need energy to run your body, it's like a car, okay, and you need to fill up the the petrol tank. And so all the energy you get is obviously from the food you eat, Uh, and then how do you partition that energy up? In the first instance, the body prioritizes the energy it needs to do sports training, whatever it is. So um the energy is uh siphoned off to cover that demand and then the residual energy is um known as energy availability and that you need that just for sort of housekeeping uh, activities in your body in other words even if you lie in bed all day um you know not don't do anything 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 you actually need to still be eating food you still need energy just to stay alive to support those fundamental uh, life processes um, just to keep ticking over. And so the problem is, as you just sort of highlighted again, what are the things under your control? The things under your control are how much you eat and also how much activity you're doing. So if you have a really uh, high training load, if your training load increases, then you know it can be easy to overlook increasing your energy intake to cover that. And that effectively is going to mean you're in going to the red in terms of energy availability. So that's kind of like an unintentional uh, low energy availability situation, although equally and we know, you know, dance is an aesthetic activity. We know that there's a, you know you have it's good to look a certain way for some dances and also there's a you know a practical physical element to it having done point work for many years i know <laughs> it's impossible to do on point unless you're sort of you know pretty lean lightweight because otherwise it's just you know you're just going to break your ankle basically and you're not going to be able to do it and also part of de of course there's you know uh if you're going to be lifted up then to prevent injury of your male partner apart from anything um you know you've got to be a certain lightweight so that's understandable that's acceptable but nevertheless it can be taken to extremes and people intentionally dancers and also uh athletes um will restrict their energy intake so now uh they need that amount of energy still they're still doing the same amount of training but uh they haven't got enough residual energy just to keep healthy and um, they will end up in low energy availability. So actually, maybe, uh, Rupert, you could also put that little diagram I did with the bar chart. So basically, yep. you take in the amount of energy you need to cover your training load and to just keep you healthy. Yep. That's the ideal situation. If you increase your training load, but you don't concurrently increase your energy intake, then that can be a problem. Now you're in low energy availability. Um, or otherwise you can also end up in low energy availability if you intentionally restrict what you're eating because you think that you will gain a performance advantage by being lightweight. It rarely works out like that. And initially, <laughs> that might be true. Initially, you know, uh, yeah, you might actually feel quite good that, hey, I feel a bit lighter, I can jump a bit higher, I can go faster on the bike, but that's uh, like a fool's gold, if you will, if you sustain that low energy availability then obviously your body has got to do something it's now in emergency mode what's it going to do to keep you alive effectively so the the body's very clever it will switch off what it um perceives as non-essential apps if i can put it that way Mm. so for example in the female athlete it might your periods might switch off Um, You mentioned sleep. You might, if you're in low energy availability, um, you're not going to be able to sleep very well. The body's also going to try and save energy, um, you know, uh, through other means like reducing your efficiency of your digestion. So lots of people present with what seems like an irritable bowel thing, but it's actually because they're not eating enough. Um, So there are lots of consequences of being in that low energy availability um in the long term initially on health and also actually on how you perform because uh, obviously if you're really tired and your bones are weak then you can you know an injury is far more likely
0: so i think that's the next the, 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 that kind of links really well to like what you know the, there are consequences and even though you might feel that there are these short-term benefits of intentionally putting yourself mm-hmm. in a uh an energy deficit um it, it's in the long term you're really going to suffer and it, this isn't just exclusive to dancers i know it's it's kind of uh anecdotally and in the research shown to be dancers are exposed to situations where they are in a calorie deficit but this is the same in endurance sport and weight category sport as well isn't it
1: yeah exactly because like, i mean uh the male the cycling study i just mentioned. Um, You know, cycling is an example of a sport where training sessions are really long. I mean, I've got cyclists in my family and they go off to Surrey Hills on a four hour ride. It's like, see you later. And so, if it's just a really um, long time uh, you're doing your activities, so for example, if you've got lots of rehearsals or classes back to back or you're on a long uh, training ride, then, you know, physically, uh, the timing when are you going to actually be able to get to eat something if you're cycling along on the bike it's actually quite physically difficult to get it down you and also you um weight category sports I mean that's kind yeah so if you have to be a certain uh, boxing and the martial arts I, I understand there are certain weight categories and so um, again you there's no choice otherwise if you you can't compete in that category otherwise so you 're right it's across it's across the board it can be for an aesthetic reason you know uh, dancers divers uh rhythmic gymnastics um, or it can be because it's an endurance element to it that you know it's just lots of training sessions uh like lightweight rowers they train the morning and evening mm. uh cyclists have a long long uh you know training rides and competitions uh and all these sports also in the ones i mentioned the gravitational sports um climbing as well by the way that's a new olympic sport uh you know if you've got to do something that's against gravity sort of basic physics tells you if you're lighter than actually you know that could help and as we said, it. it To a certain extent, but it's when you get take it to the extreme, and you're pursuing this thing, you think, oh well, if I've lost a bit of weight and now I'm faster or can jump higher or whatever it is, the logic goes, oh well, if I lose more, I'd be able to do that even better. But unfortunately, you come to that threshold, it's like, no, now it's going to be downhill. I'm afraid. There's diminishing returns there, isn't there? Ultimately, the sad thing is that it will limit your uh, your potential. uh, You know, in whatever dance or sport you're performing in it's going to have as you said a long-term effect not only on the health although i have to be honest and say most competitive dancers well when i say competitive i mean uh you know wanting to achieve uh driven dancers or athletes you know i can tell them all about the adverse health effects but they just want to know more about the performance but and that's where uh, the you know the irony comes in that what started out as a quest for improving performance actually ends up in being detrimental uh, to performance.
0: Yeah, and I think that I think that that circles back uh, pretty well to, uh, in on itself. You know, it's this kind of like, at what point do we decide that we've gained our improvement from the stimulus I or or the thing that helped us initially, and what point do we decide right that's enough now? We, i need to keep this ba- this baseline level of, of what i've got going i'm not going to get any more from just continuously mm-hmm. manipulating this this weight loss cycle um and i think that's probably the hardest thing um i certain people when people speak to me so one of the hardest things for, for them to understand and and uh know when enough is enough in terms of be, being at an optimal weight yep. have you
1: yeah, and also it's very will be very very um, dependent on the individual, um, because I know a lot of people like to use BMI as like oh you have to be, this is this magic number of BMI. If you're below it, you're not that's no good. Or if you're above it, that's fine. I mean, it's a very rough and ready thing. I I'm you know I have to be honest and say I use that as a very rough guide, uh, what the BMI is. But as we know, that doesn't reflect body composition because if we did BMI or nor the uh, you know the English rugby squad they'd all come out as being obese it's just because they got so much muscle yeah. that it doesn't reflect that so so the, I think the first thing to say is that it's very very individual because a lot of athletes and dancers say to me oh but so and so is whatever you know eating this or not eating this or so and so is this weight and whatever it's like everyone is uh, although the basic principles of how your hormones work of course that's the same in everyone the exact sort of uh, fine detail of that is absolutely an individual thing. Uh, so that's the first point to say. And, you know, it is really, um, you know, discussion with uh, your coach, your teacher, and, you know, being uh, sort of honest with yourself, if I can put it like that, you know. Uh, how are you actually feeling? And there are studies to show how you actually feel. Is a pretty good reflection of your hormones because hormones actually have a lot to do with your cognition and your psychological, your mood. So actually, if you're feeling good and happy, and you you know, then actually that's a good indication. Probably you know you're on the right track and your sleep's all right. So those sort of subjective measures of well-being, actually, we shouldn't underestimate those because not everyone can rush off and get a blood test to see what their hormones are doing. I mean, for females, it's pretty darn easy. Uh, there's an obvious clinical sign if your hormones are okay. It's have you got regular menstrual cycles. If you got regular menstruals, all women of reproductive age should have regular menstrual cycles, unless there's an underlying medical condition or unless they're in low energy availability. So for women, it's actually pretty sort of straightforward um for men obviously there isn't such an obvious sign but again it will be fatigue unusual fatigue not sleeping well all those sorts of things are little clues that you haven't quite got those three key factors uh right
0: yeah and and i think that again it's it's uh, potentially in the world of dance and certainly vocational dances we've been we've got better at spotting signs certainly in the females and open conversations about uh, menstrual function have become a lot more prominent, and are, are a good are a good conversation to have where possible. Um, but in men, in male dancers, I guess that's um, it's not we don't perceive there to be necessarily an issue there and I mean, mm. traditionally. Well, I, but also,
1: I think you're right. There's in in general, there's a cultural thing. I think we're getting over it with women. I mean it could you could say oh that's awkward if a male coach asks a teenage girl are you having periods but actually um it is a really really important training metric and you know if that is an awkward conversation to have um then you know there are other ways of sort of asking that uh indirectly for example when jorgensen the um uh triathlete uh, she won the olympics a couple of years ago um she posted all her menstrual cycles on her training peaks so there are, you know, there are non-confrontation, if I can put it that way, ways of, um, you know, finding out that information uh, for the female athlete or dancer and, of course, making them aware that actually that's a really important thing. Um, but for the men, it's probably, I have to be honest and say, probably it is a bit harder because um, in my male cycling study, there were a few of those athletes who were or had been in quite a bad situation, um, almost a full-blown eating disorder, because uh, there's a slight distinction between a disordered eating and eating disorder. Anyway, mm. suffice to say they were not in a good way. I mean, uh, their testosterone was in their boots, their bone density. I mean, they were not. They were not good. But um, it's perceived uh, sometimes that that is a sign of quote weakness. In a male athlete to say, "Well, actually, you know I have got a problem uh, with you know uh, disordered eating eating disorder, whatever, and we've seen that in the media. you know people are very quite rightly um, ready to come forward and support and say, "Oh dear, how dreadful for female runners uh, with reds relative energy deficiency and sport and stress fractures but um, a similar story on one of the cyclists in my in my study, he re- received quite a lot of negative comments, uh, right. you know, saying, "Oh, that's just, you know, you're weak and and whatever." But and that is definitely the culture's got to change there, you know. And
0: the culture's not Everyone's the culture's not the just like that in sport. That,
1: in that, uh, in the, from that point of view, but, and I think hopefully we are um, gradually getting there. I'm part of um, a campaign called Train Brave, which is to raise awareness of this issue. Of reds, um, the fact that it can occur in men and women, and the fact that uh, you know we've already said I don't. It's not just sport; it's definitely dancers. So i I'm really important to get that message through. And also, um, maybe you can include in your uh, show notes, uh, Rupert, that there's uh, the website I've written called Health for Performance, which again, um, you know, uh, explains what what we're just talking about really what reds is what you can do yourself as an athlete or dancer or coach or teacher to spot the warning signs and also some ideas some suggestions of where to go for further information etc
0: yeah I, I actually i shared an article of yours which was a case study yesterday on a female dancer from health for performance and or, ah, yeah, and, yeah, and yeah, already yeah. um people have messaged uh, in reply to that article like thinking saying actually it's it's fascinating that this 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 support is out there and that there are that it, it the future isn't so bleak like there are people um reversing this cycle so they've they've ended up in rel- a relative energy deficiency sport situation yeah. whether that's from um a change in eating pattern or training load and actually, it's been turned around. It isn't a long. It hasn't ended up being a really long term problem, and they're now much healthier.
1: Exactly. So, um, for sure. I mean, uh, of course, it will depend on uh, you know where the person is. If it's, they've been in this situation for a long time, then obviously, as you might expect, it's going to be even uh, tougher to get out of that. But certainly, there's always possibility um to do that, uh but you've got to recognise it first, uh, you know, and be aware of it and say, actually this I'm not you know, I need to do something about this. And going back to what we said at the at the at the start of the of discussing this, that ultimately it is also a psychological I found that it was more of a psychological challenge than a physical challenge. So in my cycling study, for example, um I took a group of male cyclists Um, And I divided them into two. To some, I said, fine, just go and do your own thing. And to the others, I gave some educational intervention, some recommendations about how to fuel um, optimally around training sessions, um, giving them some skeletal loading exercise. That's not so much a problem for dancers, I know, but cyclists don't really load their skeleton. Mm. So, um, But actually what I found was that it wasn't that I was asking them to do something very difficult some of them manages managed to take on board my uh my recommendations and those were those were the positive ones their bone health improved their race performance improved that's the big carrot for the athletes
0: yeah
1: but actually the ones that didn't do that it wasn't because they found it such a psychological challenge to Change uh what they had in their mind um to eat more or eat more effectively or the timing of it, so it is actually the psychological challenge uh that sometimes is the the difficult thing to overcome for people to recover out of reds, and also if you're in a situation of low energy availability, as we've discussed, it affects so many systems. Of course, your performance will be subpar—you know, below par—and your health. But actually, it actually affects the way you think, your cognition. So you know, you don't make necessarily the best decisions. That uh, you, you can't rationally see that actually you're not in a good place. Um, so that's where it's quite challenging to um, you know help support the person get out of that. But what I can say, definitely, the positive thing is. Um, uh, when people do manage to overcome that challenge and change whatever it is the training load well it's, it's going to be a combination of everything isn't it modify the training load uh, modify what they're eating in terms of uh, it might be actually just a timing issue of of when they're eating because um, that also affects your hormones adversely if you if you have sort of little deficits during the day the point is when they do do that then quite quickly they will immediately report back to me and said oh my goodness I slept so much better I feel so much more alert um, and it's like, yes, uh, you know, I believe. I, I I believe now this is the way to go. Um, but you have to make that first step. Um, you know, I, I'm always here to support these people, but I'm not a policeman. I can't force people to do this. Mm. Um, but on the other hand, the positive thing is it is under the control of the athlete and dancer. They can change things around and, you know, Quite quickly, they will start to realize that actually, uh, you know, they do feel much better. And lo and behold, they also perform much better, which is, of course, uh, what everyone wants to. That's the ultimate goal for anybody.
0: You're listening to the Science and Dance Podcast. This is episode two with Dr. Nikki Kay. So I mean we've touched on every single kind of almost every single kind of co- consequence there of relative energy deficiency certainly where there's either been unintentional or intentional um manipulation of food intake or energy intake. Um but to kind of touch on um some issues that are probably closer to home to dancers is we've we've we already mentioned the menstrual function and the changes in that and the The kind of social acceptance of those changes is is drastically changing you know we're, we're doing better now with female dancers, but yeah. also the the kind of bony stress injuries that seem to be so common both from from the foot and in some cases all the way through to the the lower back in dancers yep. um could well be from these three factors as well you know this recovery training mm-hmm. load and nutritional uh triangle and those often, I mean, certainly in my experience of coaching, is that those have been bigger predictors of return to dance and and health in the future. Um, but probably the impact of the the the, the psychological impacts have a huge impact on these other injuries that we see as well, and uh, good associations with with food, good associations with how much and rest and training I'm doing. Uh would you say that they're a big indicator of uh, of, of sure well of that's a very well.
1: very interesting and there's just a study out recently um uh that if you ask if you sort of go straight up to somebody who maybe has got a slightly disordered eating pattern and you say, "Hey, tell me what you're eating, most likely they're going to tell you what uh they think you want to hear right if you Ask them about their attitudes to their training, which is actually, you know, something I'm uh, looking into. Uh, you know, how do you feel uh, if you, you know, you do feel really anxious if you miss a class all this sort of thing? Your your attitude to your training, if that sort of burges on being a little bit obsessive, shall we say, uh, then that's a very good predictor that actually you're going to ha- carry through those same attitudes to your nutrition um so that's a very interesting uh point but actually it's also a little bit tricky because in order to be a successful dancer or athlete or frankly to be a little to be successful in life full stop you have to have a bit of drive and determination dare i say even a little bit of obsession and i include myself in this um <laughs> <laughs> uh you know you have to be focused and all that sort of thing and that's all those are laudable qualities brilliant brilliant but uh ironically those those sort of uh, characteristics can also lead you get, can go off track shall we say you can start putting those into being really really determined and rigid about your nutritional uh, patterns you see and so and now it's a vicious circle because i've just said that if you we said earlier that if you're in a low energy availability state then your cognition isn't very good you you know you can't make really great decisions so you see what i mean so yeah. you've got you're at risk shall we say if you're a successful dancer or athlete of developing reds but equally once you're in that situation then it's very difficult to extricate yourself from that because now you can't uh you know re uh, reboot your psycho well basically the idea is you have to reboot your hormones and your therefore your whole physical uh all the physical processes and your psychology so it's a it's a it's a two way street and i think that that psychological element is really important and there's a study showing that there's a 20% higher incidence of disordered eating amongst athletes because guess what they are of that certain uh, mental uh, type if you will you know uh, driven and determined and all that sort of thing so I think but that's also a positive thing that I say discuss with the dancers and athletes I'm not trying to change you as a person you know uh, that's fantastic you have all this drive and ambition and everything I and, and you, sh- I don't want you to get rid of those but I just want you to refocus them please um, and that's also what's going to help you get out of this situation if you are in a bad situation of red uh you've got to draw on that uh, mental strength that you have uh that kind of got you there in the first place that can also be the key thing that's going to help you get out of it
0: i, I think that's that's so um interesting to hear that what is some a positive trait can also leave you at risk Uh, sometimes but but then again you don't want to change that person you want that person (laughs) to be ambitious and that's and that's good i mean we within sports science we've certainly over the past year we're we're making some really big efforts to quantify how much dancing people do and also what that looks like what what is the intensity of dance you know there's been uh cardiovascular research and and heart rate research and 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 oxygen so have you got me there
1: no, you're back again you were just, just saying about r-
0: r- the sports science research is becoming so much more um at the forefront in terms of quantifying how much dancing young dancers and even company dancers are doing or west end dancers or, or even on cruise ships mm-hmm. by putting things like wearables and, and and getting jump metrics and trying to find out how far people travel and how many high intensity efforts they make for example, I know with the dancers that I work with, we, we do um, rate of perceived exertion for every single class that they do to try and monitor large fluctuations in training load. So I think that dance schools or even companies are making trying to make more efforts to say, look, we need to know when we're working hard. We need to know when we're, we we need to step on a little bit so that our dancers can adapt to the tr- the, tr- the dancing that we're doing so that they can cope with the amount of dancing they're doing. But in terms of the education surrounding reds or in terms of the education surrounding nutrition, certainly, and recovery, how in terms of the work you do working practically with dancers or athletes, how is that going in the world of dance? You know, are are people very receptive? And they're very receptive, certainly, of strength and conditioning and training load and the fact that we have to monitor how much people do but in terms of the nutrition what's been the response so, so far over the last period of time um,
1: well I mean I think you know I think positive and I think uh, going back to that point of you can't look at anything in isolation yeah. so you know uh, as you say uh, monitoring and training load is now becoming an accepted thing and personally I think what you do the perceived exertion is actually brilliant um, you know uh because i as i said um earlier on how you're actually feeling it reflects very nicely on your hormones so i'm a big fan of that um but you know taking it as a whole you know dancers you have to as a dancer you need you need lots of factors you need to be physically you know um uh, have physical ability obviously you also need to have musicality you know you also need to have artistry so it's no difference then when I'm saying to, that's how I sort of explain it to the dancers and athletes, you know, and if you're a cyclist, you know, you you don't look at just one thing, do you? You don't just look at your heart rate. You look at your power output. You look at all the other factors. So the same thing, um, you know, you have to put in that equation uh, your training load monitoring, a perceived exertion, for example. I think that's anyone, you know, that's quite straightforward thing. You don't need fancy kit to do that. And equally, you don't need like super fancy kit for the nutrition and the recovery. You know, just recording or making a mental note or whatever it is of your wellness score, How, what is your sleep pattern like, how you're doing there. Uh, And just, I mean, I'm not a massive fan of, like, uh, absolutely writing down every single thing you eat because I think that can feed into that obsessive nature. But just keeping a mental uh, list or just a very rough sort of... Uh, menu in your mind that I've got to make sure that I have um, a carb and a protein portion with every meal. I've got to make sure that I'm never um, exercising in a really, well, a fasted state, effectively, a really low energy availability site, uh, state. And I must make sure, make a mental note within 30 minutes of stopping your uh, training session, whatever that is a dance class, uh, you know, a cycle ride, whatever it is, within 30 minutes, I must eat some protein and carbohydrate. Unless, of course, if you're having a very quick shower and going straight to a meal, fine. But if often there's a lag and it's essential. So just making, so, you know, just having some, sort of good habits, if you will. And you th- know, like you get up in the morning, you brush your teeth. So, uh, you know, I must eat uh, <laughs> these uh, these types of food with every meal and that mm. sort of thing um it's It's just a simple sort of uh thing for example, if you're going to do a class, you're gonna make sure your point shoes are in good condition aren't you you're gonna have sewn the ribbons in nicely, mind you in our day talking about the the uh end of the point shoe, we always used to darn it, but apparently nowadays you can just stick something on anyway. basically <laughs> you can make sure that your point shoes you've got the right pair of point shoes you want to wear. That you're, you know, you're wearing the right kit and all that sort of thing. And if your bike, you're going to check that the, you know, the chain and the setup. You know, these are things that you would do for the the things you're using, right? Guess what? The most important thing you're using is your body, is you. So why would you not mm. check all those things, you know, and be, uh, you know, attention to detail with all those three factors? that you are with your point shoes or your equipment or whatever. Um, you see what I mean? So it's just yeah. getting in the mindset, trying to change the mindset. It's like, you know, you've got to really be on top of these things.
0: And that's kind of, that's really applicable for the, the developing dancer as well or the developing athlete, certainly. Yeah. Like we've got, I really encourage da- um, like young people under 16 that aren't like full-time vocational to, to to keep going with the sports that they do at school and their extracurricular activities and all those things obviously add in um from a motor, motor pattern point of view and like an injury prevention kind of or injury mitigation uh point of view yeah. that's, that's really really important but we for parents listening to this or any younger dancers listening to this those are that just treating this in the same way that you would brushing your teeth or wearing the right point shoes is 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 definitely the message to get across and but is there special considerations we should make for young dancers as they're developing before the age of 16, because there are situations where people as young as 12 have, uh, as you say, either disordered eating or eating disorders um, because of their own influence. And as parents or guardians or teachers, what should we really be looking to as a a red flag and what should we be encouraging in terms of their activity levels and Mm. their nutrition? Yes, well,
1: that's a very good point because really you know, that age group, the young ones, developing, like you say, because, you know, everything is developing, bodies, minds, everything. So, you know, uh, it's laying the foundations uh, in terms of their health, but also actually in terms of their habits, you know. If they are have a routine, they know that, you know, this is how you should eat as as an athlete or dancer. And definitely that's the parents can be really um, helpful, you know, providing... Or, or reminding them it's like hey <laughs> you need to have that snack before you whiz off and do your class or whatever it is um just being there to support but you're absolutely right that is key in terms of physical and just sort of uh ensuring good patterns and i think also you made a very good point there that you know um ultimately you might come down uh my own children did this you know that i gave them an the opportunity to try lots of sports and then you come down Uh, in in favor of one so encouraging them and there's lots of papers to say that early specialization uh, just a mono sport uh, you know at a very young age isn't actually advisable because apart from anything there's this burnout thing I mean (laughs) uh, you know especially in swimming and I have to say I was that myself and even I saw that maybe was going to happen in my own children that you know, uh, swimming, j- just monitor a lot of training, swimming, swimming. Frankly, after a while, it just gets boring and, you know, they don't want to do that anymore. So mixing it up a bit, I think, is really important. You're absolutely right. The motor patterns, you've got to, um, everything is developing, including the neuromuscular um, network pattern in the, in the youngster. They're changing proportions. So giving them little challenges, different uh, looks at different types of exercise uh, is it all right all, also really important um and also fun we mustn't forget this i mean you know <laughs> uh, you know let them you know have some fun try things out um and that's an excellent time to put in the good habits with you know as a as a parent uh, you know supporting uh good nutritional habits and and all that sort of thing and so i think the red flag going back to that red flag and i've had a few of these where parents have contacted me and said Um, I'm worried because should or should I be worried because my uh, you know young teenage son is like wanting to train all the time won't eat any carbohydrates Um, it's like uh, yes (laughs) so those are the things if if the youngster is really I mean again being and keen and enthusiastic that's to be encouraged but really really so like um, even if they're ill, they're saying, "I must go, I must go." It's like, hold on, this is now becoming a little bit obsessive, and mm-hmm. you know, saying, "Oh no, 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 I can't eat certain food types," things like this, or being secretive about their what they're eating, or just changing in mood. I mean, I know teenagers can be a handful, um, <laughs> mm-hmm. but you know, especially like a, a change, a real change in character—that they're being secretive, they're being moody, they're being. They, they they get angry if you ask, oh, have you eaten so-and-so or, or whatever. Um, those are warning signs. I think it's easy as a parent. You know your child better than anybody. So if this is a really, you know, you know, you feel worried, then go on your parental instincts um, and, and get in there early because if you, if you leave it, then, of course, you know, it can become more of an entrenched problem and difficult to um, do something about it
0: and um, what about in the studio is it, or in the in the training room or you know on the field for example um but in terms of dance it's certainly in the studio are there are there some noticeable signs for teachers
1: oh yeah very good point of course the parents we've said and the next and the next uh you know the teachers the coaches they're going to again uh if you're you know you're going to know uh your student okay so you're going to see if what well, You're going to see physically, obviously, if they change, Um, but definitely that coordination uh, point is a very valid one because uh, one of the yet another consequence of uh, low energy availability and the hormones not working uh, for you is actually loss of neuromuscular control. So that means coordination, effectively. Um, so they did this um in uh female athletes, and they found those in low energy availability had slower reaction time and not so good at balance and you can see and that's obviously especially in dance you're gonna see that right mm. very obviously if there's for that for that student, obviously everyone is an individual, but the dan- the teachers i mean teachers are excellent that's what they're trained to do they've got a very good eye, and so they're gonna notice if this particular dancer that was you know at a certain level now is really deteriorating um in their balance and whatever um it's and and looking a bit on the thin side and and not picking up corrections quickly because it's got a cognitive function you know you're going to be wondering the teacher's going to be wondering what's going on here is there something with the nutrition um is there something um therefore their hormones aren't quite working um and so for sure the coaches and teachers are absolutely essential uh in this process it's another triangle isn't it Mm. uh it's the it's the student or it's the the dancer athlete it's the parents and it's the coach teacher um you know they've all got to talk to each other um and and uh yeah uh try and support the dancer or the athlete if there are warning signs like you say
0: well, I mean that's that's super insightful, Nikki, and obviously your research is is continuing and has been ongoing for a while. Um, and I, I was fortunate enough to to see you present in in Helsinki at the um, dance medicine science conference uh, there. And I think um, the fact that there are resources now available to dancers, available to athletes, that openly talk about all the that, that that triangle that I keep referring to, which I will put a visual up for, is is so fascinating. So if people kind of wanted to get in touch with you or find out more information or uh, dig a little bit deeper on relative energy deficiency sport or dancer, or how long we're making that acronym, but where where would they find you? Where are the best places to kind of read read your research or? or get in touch with you
1: well i would definitely um suggest that everyone has a look at the health for performance website this was something a website i was invited to write and wrote on behalf of the british association of sports and exercise medicine and you will see there um i've put uh separate pages for the dancer athlete for the parent coach for the parent for the coach and also for healthcare professionals. But please note that all those pages, everyone can look at each other's page because mm. it's got to be this multidisciplinary approach that we always talk about in uh, in, in medicine and, and science. Um, everyone's got to be, everyone's got to know, you know, everyone's got to be on the same page. So I'm very against having a closed shop. Oh, the doctors only talk about this and the athletes only talk about that. Everyone is in this <laughs> together as it were. So that would be the first thing I would say. Have a look at that. Scroll through. Have a have a look around. Um, my I think my contacts on there, or otherwise maybe, uh, Rupert, you can put a link to my own personal website, uh, Nikki K Fitness. Um, it touches on. Uh, all my papers are listed there. Uh, I do blogs, regular blogs. You can have a look at some blogs there, and also there's information if you, uh, think. If if you're listening to this and thinking, actually, yes, I am either a dancer or an athlete that does actually need some help, or if you're a parent or a dance teacher or coach, then um, please get in contact with me. Um, I'm now running a joint clinic with my uh, colleague, uh, clinical dietitian Renia McGregor, the Inspire Clinic. Um, we're running one in Bath and London, and we see dancers and athletes with uh, potential problems of reds um, and eating disorders. So yeah, just to have a look at those places, and and very happy to uh, follow up any questions people have
0: or or whatever. That's great, Nikki. Thank you so much. I I feel like because we've we've touched so much on the the kind of nutritional side of things and the behavioural side of things. I feel like there's going to have to end up being a part two at some point down the line. but well, uh, oh,
1: that sounds exciting. Yeah, we, we didn't do all our case studies either, did we? No, no, we hey? no, it didn't. But... <laughs> yeah, part two, part two to come.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but thank you so, so much for um, giving us that insight. And I, I have no doubt that people will be in touch off the back of this and um, certainly have more questions for you uh, in the future. Um, I mean, even I've learned a little bit more today and got me thinking about impact that strength coaches and physiotherapists can make to uh to to bring all this together and and help so, once again thank you very much I'll make sure that all the that everybody can find out where you're at, thanks Nikki. My pleasure, thanks
1: Rupert.